And this is Politics Friday on NPR News. I'm Brian Baxt with you today for our regular host, Mike Mulcahy. We'll be devoting much of today's show to the state budget under construction at Minnesota's Capitol. Two leading DFL lawmakers with their eyes on the big picture have come by. And we'll hear from a Republican who says the pace of spending is unsustainable. We'll recap the governor's State of the State speech, listen to some of the other voices heard at the Capitol, and look ahead to activity we can expect next week. To start, we're joined by Senator John Marty, a DFLer from Roseville. He's a mainstay in the legislature and now in his 36th year, and he's got a powerful post as Senate Finance Committee Chair. And Representative Liz Olson, a fourth-term Democrat from Duluth and chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. The big budget bills must make it through committees before the full chambers can vote on them, and they are going through their committees. So both chairs have had an eye on the line-by-line view of the 70-plus billion-dollar budget in the works. Senator Marty, thanks for ducking off the Senate floor to be here. Glad to be with you. And Representative Olson, I'm glad you're missing the, the snow up north to be down here. Me too. Senator Marty, I'm going to start with you. When Governor Walls proposed his budget, he said that his goal was to make Minnesota the best state in the country to raise a family. Is there an overall goal of the Senate's budget? Might it be the same thing? I would argue it's very much the same thing. I think we've been working together with the House and the governor and trying to come up with a budget that reflects Minnesota values. And one of the biggest ones is taking care of kids and making it a great place to raise a family. And I think our budgets can reflect that. Representative Olson, these bills are big in terms of dollar and scope. I think one of the Republican members compared it to Moby Dick and War and Peace today at just one portion of the bill. And so they can be hard for the public to get through and size up. You've been through them all. Is there a broad theme or thrust that you can apply to the entire package? Definitely. We're making sure that Minnesotans have what they need to live their lives. We're investing in affordable child care and education, and we're making sure Minnesotans have money in their pockets through tax tax rebates and a whole number of measures that it is really about making sure that Minnesota is the best place, the best state to raise a family. And that is what we are doing through this budget. You both were here for the governor's state of the state speech this week, and he referred to the Minnesota miracle of the 1970s, you know, when the state sought to make school funding equal across the state. What's the miracle this year, Representative Olson? I think the miracle this year, it's its both a process and it's what we're going to deliver on for Minnesotans, that we Minnesotans were so frustrated by the gridlock that they had seen here for so many years. And I think it was, you know, one of the very first press conferences between the Senate, the House, and the governor is the era of gridlock is over. We are getting things done. We already are. We hit the ground running with the tax conformity bill earlier than it's ever been passed, and it just kept going from there. We've passed free school meals for all children. We've done a whole bunch of things already. And I think that's really what the story of this session is about, is about being effective, getting things done, but getting things done that improve the lives of Minnesotans in some really big and profound ways. So this is our time to really go big and to show that government can work and show that it can really invest in improving the lives of everyone from every corner of our state. Doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter color of your skin, doesn't matter your income level. We're going to do something for you. And Senator, is there a long-term impact that you're looking at? Yeah, I, I'd say she said many of the same arguments I'd make. And, and I want to second one of the points she made. It's not just about the outcome, but the process as well. Representative Olson came in and said, why don't we try and do our budget targets together? And I think the fact that we, instead of waiting to the last week of session to come up with a joint budget target, 
In fact, we came out early. I think even the news media was surprised when we announced that we had new budget targets. And that way was done thoughtfully after hearings and all the committees, after we put together a process now. Now the budget chairs are working within those targets and the budget scoping that we put in place for them. I think it's much more accountable. We've done more things in terms of trying to get to the transparency and accountability of having bills, separating out bills and following the constitutional single subject, which has been a sore point with me, how we haven't done that in the past. But I think we'll see largely that the policy bills are separate from the budget bills. And that's a big step forward. And I'm really pleased how much process success we've had on that. But other things, including we don't cook the books anymore. We count inflation on both sides of the equation. No state besides Minnesota ever did that, where we counted it only on half the equation. Minnesota will now move forward in a logical way. So I think that process matters. And it means we won't be having everything done the last week of session with late midnight hours and and then we don't finish in time. I think what we're looking forward here to do is have a rational government that people can be proud of that thinks through things in a logical way and that process does matter. I'm glad you brought up inflation. Yesterday the House passed its education bill which links the education classroom dollars to inflation. The Senate bill that is yet to come up doesn't do that. Why not? The Senate bill, they, the Senate chairs, they put together a budget that they thought was best for schools. They'll work that all out in conference committee. But um, the thing when we were talking about the inflation, the important thing, the problem we had in the past was that our forecast, it's like telling a weather forecaster, you can't tell us about the snow. Tell us about everything else. We'll factor out one part of this, but not the rest. We want to have accurate information so on. But in terms of factoring in education, we want to make sure that going forward, schools don't have these dips and so on. So I see that's why the House and Governor had proposed that. The Senate, I'm sure, is open to discussing that further as well. And Representative Olson, why only that area? What? Why not make automatic in- increases in other parts of the budget? Well, I think we're being, again, really responsible. And this is a what you see is what you get budget in terms of what we spend. And we want to be cognizant of what happens in the future out years as well. But we know that in, in education in particular has just not seen the investments that it's been needing. We've been underfunding education for far too long. And this is a way that we can do that by tying it to inflation. We can make sure that, that school districts can make long-term decisions about hiring staff and bringing down class sizes and not worry about, well, what does that mean in two years from now? And so this is a way that we can really structurally help our schools, that we can make these investments. And this is one area in particular. So we talk not just about the the formula and tie into inflation, but we talk about the cross uh, special education cross subsidy, something that, you know, the state can really dive into to move the needle in a way that's meaningful. And we have the federal government who hasn't been able to keep up their end of the bargain on this, that there are ways that I think education in particular is exactly where we need to be investing, not just now, but making sure that we have stability for our schools moving forward. And that's what the inflation in the per pupil formula does. And for the folks at home, that cross subsidy means when they're using their general classroom dollars to pay for the sub the special education expectations of those students. And Representative Olson, uh, we've heard Republicans and some Democrats say that there's not enough new money for nursing homes. And we've also heard that people feel like they're, the agriculture sector got shortchanged a bit. Is there any area that you feel is not getting enough? 
Well, I think we have a really great budget. And one of the things that I, that, that Senator Marty and I talk a lot about too is like we have what is the surplus now and people see the $17 billion, but that, that's largely just to use now and it's not ongoing. So when we think about being responsible in terms of government spending, we have to think about ways we can invest now and be mindful of what does that do in the future. Like education and tying it to inflation obviously means we're not just spending now, but we're spending in the future. But with a lot of this money being one-time funding, we had to think about where we could do a substantial investment now. And so, for example, housing was one that we could put a, a larger amount of money right now to, to do an influx to make sure people can afford their, their homes and stay in their homes if they're renting and for new home buyers to be able to, to start building equity by purchasing homes. So we, we saw different areas of the budget that, that needed different ways to think about how we do spending now and in the future. And of course, I think there are so many needs in Minnesota and in particular, you know, when we've been in a divided government, we've only been able to get so far. And so we are making up ground for years and years of underfunding in certain areas. So there, of course, are going to be needs that I wish we would have more ability to spread out. But this is an incredible budget that really invests in every area from agriculture to nursing homes to childcare to across the board, we do something substantial and transformative in each area with what we're able to do with these budgets. Senator John Marty, uh, some of these spending increases the legislature's weighing, at least in terms of percentage, are, are kind of staggering. Listen to how Senate Minority Leader Mark Johnson described them a few nights ago after the Governor Wall's State of the State address. One of the big issues that we see is that 30% growth in government. So when, when the governor's talking about, hey, we want to get government out of your life, the irony is that right now we're building 30% more government. That's more bureaucracy, more councils, more red tape, more taxation to support that. Does the senator have a point? Uh, first of all, this thing about government getting in the way today on the Senate floor, we're dealing with all these things about where the Republicans seem to want them to be involved in reproductive health, every issue of people's personal lives. I think that when they're talking about they don't want government interfering, it kind of contradicts what they're doing on all the social and the personal issues. And so I, but in terms of the budget, yeah, he's talking about the fact that because we got all this COVID one-time money, he's making it sound like this is just huge increases. And remember, first of all, we do two-year budget cycles, which is a good thing rather than one time and every year we have to do a new budget. And on top of that, Minnesota, I think, is about the only state that goes out and factors in the next two years after that. When we're setting the budget guidelines, the framework for the budget, we are looking not just at the current two-year one that we have to set, but also two years out what happens. And when we negotiate with the governor and the House on setting those targets, we made sure it was sustained at the end of it so there wasn't a cliff the day after that four-year cycle ends. And so I think we're trying to be responsible in how we set the budget, and um, the Republicans are going to attack whatever we do. Senator, you've been doing this, as we mentioned, for quite a while. Uh, You were first elected back in 1986. Do you remember the size of the the first state budget that you voted on? It was much smaller than this, but inflation's done incredible things over the years, and, and government's been asked to do so much more. When we see during COVID, you know, when they shut down the schools, St. Paul schools was running food service for the children who so many of them are hungry 
you know, that they had to take care of the fact they weren't at home. And the schools are trying to fill all those gaps. The schools are trying to fill mental health gaps, all the other challenges. So in effect, yeah, the government has grown in size. But all the things, you know, when we had our human services bill the other day, Republicans were saying, we're not spending enough on nursing homes. We're not spending enough on this. And those are the very expensive portions of the budget. We put literally billions more money into it. They say, we want more than that. I keep thinking, well, you can't say we're spending too much and then ask for more. I, I happen to have that number at my fingertips, by the way, $11.5 billion in general fund spending, which was at the time a 12% increase over the prior mm-hmm. budget. And Representative Olson, you've been here shorter. Do you remember what the, how big the first budget you voted on was? Somewhere $40 billion, I would guess. Uh, $45.5 billion was the first one. And, and it was less than uh, $52 billion for the current two years we're in. This one is due to approach $72 billion. What do you say, Representative Olson, to the people who say that this growth is too much too fast? I don't think that's true. I think, to Senator Marty's point, government has been asked to do more. And if you take, for example, what we talked about with the nursing home funding, the value-based reimbursement, which essentially is the automatic increase that nursing home gets, was done by the Republicans. And that is one area where government just automatically grows. And that is something that the Republicans did uh, just not that many years ago. So there are ways that doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat that they have got us to the place we are. But I think, to Senator Marty's point, Government can do good, and we have shown that. And we have shown that, and I think that is a beautiful point. During COVID, it wasn't just meals. It was our schools providing child care so that nurses could go and be on the front lines of a pandemic. It was government that was relied on for that. And so that's exactly, I think, where we need to be thinking about where we invest, and we invest in people. And so that the $52 billion you're talking about is our schools, is our health care system, is what we are asking government to do for people to make their lives better. And I think that where we were at. And to Senator Marty's point, we are being very conscious of what we're adding to new spending and what that does in future years to not tie our hands in a way that's unsustainable. And that's why I'm sure we'll get to a conversation around some of the revenue pieces. You can't just spend without thinking about how we make this sustainable in the long run. And uh, people who don't pay as much attention as you or I uh, to the to the numbers, the $17.5 billion surplus, people look at that and say, that's a lot of money. Can you help put that in context as to how that breaks down. Yeah, so the seven, the surplus money that we're talking about that's come in is essentially one-time spending. So you can't, you know, make a pay increase for someone long-term with $17 billion right now because we can't keep using it in the future. So that is like how we talk about it as one-time money means it's not available for us to use well into the future. For anything we do now, it has to be like something someone could spend on right now. Um, and so that is how we think about the surplus going into the budget. But as you discussed, it seems like a lot of Money, but when you spread it across all of these budget areas, uh, it, it really sp- spreads out pretty in all of our chairs. Had things to say about, you know, would have liked to have a little bit more to be able to spend on top of what they already will be getting in their base. And so it it seems like a large number, but it's not quite what I think people see it as the ability to do long-term structural change with. But I would say that's also why we're able to do rebate checks in the tax bill. We're we're able to do, that was a priority of the governor, and we're delivering that in some one-time tax cuts and some one-time checks for Minnesotans, too, that uh, uh, really put money in their pockets right now. And I do want to get back to taxes, but but you know, we've seen some trouble signs on the the horizon for the the economy, the national economy. Is Minnesota's rainy day fund big enough to weather a potential downturn? And does it have to grow as you guys increase the size of the budget? 
I think that we are watching how how big the budget reserve should be. I think that's one of the things Minnesota has done very responsibly. When I mentioned we look out four years and beyond in terms of it, that's why we have the rainy day fund. That's why we have it so we don't have the crises when we, the economy turns south, because that's, that's always the case. And, and in terms of the size of it, as Representative Olson mentioned, again, the reason it's that much bigger this year is because there's a lot of one-time investments in housing, in infrastructure, and things like that. So that takes away from it. And the other thing I'd love to point out about that $17.5 billion, about $6 billion is all we have in terms of ongoing funding. The vast majority is the one-time stuff, largely from COVID and so on, federal funding. But the, of that $6 billion, I asked Minnesota Management and Budget and our state fiscal staff to take a look at how much it would take to keep the budget that the Republicans and TFLers put together two years ago, the inflation that hit since that time that wasn't predicted, how much would it take? Of that $6 billion on time, one ongoing money, over about $5 billion of that would be eaten up by the inflation if we were to keep things at the same level they mm-hmm. were. So we basically had about $1 billion of money over inflation that can be used ongoing. So that's tiny compared to what people are talking about. And that was the thing we had to talk with our budget chairs about because everyone said, oh, we got all this money. We can, why don't I get more? I mean, virtually every chair is saying, how come I don't get enough money when there's so much money? We're saying, well, realistically, if you take out that one-time money, you factor in inflation, there's just not nearly the kind of numbers people are talking about. And I don't like to even call it surplus because surplus, the dictionary defines as leftover money. And if we've got a housing crisis, if we've got a long-term care crisis, if we've got all these other challenges trying to get people childcare, we've got all those crises. The needs aren't met, so it's not surplus. It's money that's needed for the causes. Senator Marty, you were the only senator back in 1999 to vote against a big tax cut when Minnesota had a relatively large surplus uh, then. Are, are you comfortable with the size of the tax cuts on the table this year? I think that what came out of the budget targets are reasonable numbers. Again, yeah, as you pointed out, I was the only one back then, and it was a year later, states started taking a deep turn into deficits because we weren't being responsible in that, and that tax cut was not a responsible one. So I strongly opposed that tax cut at the time, and I was, I guess, the only one at the time. But but um, I think that we are doing responsible budget here. I'm really pleased. I think it was really good experience to be sitting in the negotiations with the governor and administration and the House leadership and so on. And I think we came up with a very balanced, fair, sustainable budget. And Representative Olson, your committee reviewed the House tax bill today, and the question came up, how much of the tax cuts are one-time versus how much are permanent? Could you just give us a feel for that proportion? Yeah, sure. So in what we've been talking about, too, with ongoing sustainability of the budget, if we were going to do an ongoing tax cut, we had to figure out how we'd pay for it. And so there is obviously in the tax bill, we're more front-loaded in what we're doing to give Minnesotans cuts and relief and rebates right now with a a number of things that will be ongoing uh, as we move into the future as well. And one of the big things in in the budget was, you know, we really want to invest in children and families in our tax bill, and we do that. That was a big priority of the governor, the House, and the Senate. And so you saw that with the dependent and child tax credit, which does have spending uh, in the future too, but it really goes to the families we want. We don't want to do tax breaks for the wealthy, the millionaires. What we're talking about is the average family in Minnesota who's having trouble paying for their child care, who's, you know, living, having trouble figuring out how they're going to keep their roof over the head. That is who we're trying to invest in with this tax bill is we want to make sure that we're really being deliberate about who we're delivering relief for there too 
with with our work, and especially we talked about the Social Security tax cuts. We wanted to target that to the seniors who need it, those modest income seniors. And so we really have been really deliberate that this tax bill, yes, it delivers, you know, ongoing tax cuts for some. It does things to get money in people's pockets now, but we're really targeting who those families are to make sure the right people in Minnesota are getting those. I know neither of you are in charge of the tax side, at least jurisdictionally. Uh, The governor and the House have put their tax plans on the table. We're still waiting on the Senate. Uh, The House one has a top bracket income tax increase uh, for a new fifth-tier bracket, and the governor wants a capital gains increase. You hear folks saying all the time, why are we raising taxes when the state does have a lot of money available. How do you answer that? Sure. Again, as I mentioned earlier, how much ongoing money, if you take inflation out of it, there's about a billion left. The Social Security tax thing alone, if you include all the wealthy seniors in it, um, that alone would take far more than the money available. But when you factor in all these other needs, I think Minnesotans want to make sure their roads are taken care of. I think Minnesotans want to make sure we address the needs of our infrastructure and our human needs for child care, for early learning, for seniors, for people with disabilities. I think they really want us to do that. And frankly, everything we do requires taxes. And that's why we want to have a fair tax system. And I think the House and Senate and Governor are all committed to doing that. And and what's become of the $550 million in new public safety local grants that the governor asked for? It's not – I don't see it in the the House tax bill, and I I don't think it's in the public safety bill. Representative Olson, what's going to – happen there? So we have a lot of different approaches to public safety. We have a really fantastic public safety bill that is going to be uh, you know, heard on the floor and we'll be debating that soon, but it has lots of investments in making sure that we can support uh, public safety in a whole variety of ways. Another way we talk about it in the tax bill is we're doing a lot on local government aid. And one of the ways is we're not telling local governments you have to spend it all in this way. We're saying here is your increased aid and they may choose to spend it all on public safety, and that is their prerogative. And so we do have the ability for local governments to have the funds they need to invest in public safety, and we also do a fair number of things in the public safety bill, the budget bill as well, that's going to have a whole comprehensive look to how we think about public safety. And one comment on the public safety, because I don't know, I haven't seen the Senate tax bill yet, it's coming out next week, but in terms of public safety, after all the years of gridlock on gun violence, when you see, we're talking about budget here today, but when you're talking about gun violence, I think we see police killing in Minnesota. We see all across the country mass shootings. We see suicides. We see all of this. And I think we will actually have some responsible gun violence provisions. And the House has passed some. I hope the Senate will as well, because that has a huge impact on public safety. It's not all money. Some of these things are policy change that could make our society much safer. And Representative Olson, you brought up the housing um uptick in, in spending this year that I think there's a billion dollars in the one-time money. But does that have to be spent all at once or are you expecting it'll be metered out over time? That's a great question. So we want to do as much as we can up front and there is a lot of potential in the housing space to do that. And there are things too that we can create funds for rental ex- assistance, for example, where we could create a, a special revenue fund where it can continue to be spent out of, but it has the set amount of money that comes out of that billion dollars. So it's accounted for whether it gets spent right now or it gets doled out over a number of years. And we've got about a minute to go. But does, does the bonding bill have a pulse? And if so, what happens to the money that was put aside for 
for a cash uh, construction project. Sure. I hope we have a bonding bill. I very much hope we do. We have huge capital investment needs. Um, we're certainly looking at if we have to doing a cash only one, but I think it's all that's the kind of issue that the negotiations on are so complex because it requires bipartisan, uh, significant bipartisan support to make it happen. And I was disappointed that the Senate. Republicans did not go along with it the way the House Republicans did in their bill. I'm hopeful we'll get one yet. And in about 20 seconds, where does that money go if it if it's not in a bonding package? I think we're really hopeful we're still going to get it done, and we're going to use it on capital investment projects this session. Representative Olson, Senator Marty, thanks for coming by. Back to Politics Friday. Republicans are in the minority in both the House and Senate, but they're far from passive when it comes to the budget being assembled. They're railing against policy changes. Spending, they say, is excessive and fees, taxes, and regulations they call unnecessary. Absolutely bonkers is the catchphrase our next guest has readily used. Representative Ann New Brindley is a Republican from North Branch. She's in her fourth term and is a former member of GOP leadership. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Brian. You haven't been sparing in your objections to the DFL budget. What are a couple of the main ones? Well, I think I think the biggest concerns, you know, we're looking at a 40% increase in this budget. It is a massive growth in government this year. And with a $17.5 billion budget surplus, we are raising a ton of money in taxes. About $9 billion in taxes are being raised through this budget. And that's in a year that we have, you know, I mean, there's there's talk that, you know, only $12 billion of this is, is uh, one-time money. We can only use it once. And so the Democrats need need to raise taxes. Well, the reality is even the portion of the of the budget surplus that is ongoing is a record budget surplus. And I want to put the, the $9 billion figure used in context. That's a four-year lookout. So not just this current budget, but the budget that goes beyond it. Correct. Okay. Yes, that is correct. All right. Uh, Democrats say that there's been an underinvestment in schools and transportation and other areas. Uh, and this is a catch-up budget. Uh, do, they, do they have a point? Well, you know what? We've been dealing with budget surplus for, surpluses for a long time. So if we're not caught up, that is only the fault of the people making the budgets. And for the last four years, that has been Democrats in the House of Representatives. So I, I just I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And, you know, I mean, while they're taking talking about how we're so behind in these different investments, they're doing nothing for our nursing homes. And I'm not sure if folks are aware, but we have a real crisis. It is not a looming crisis. It is a current immediate crisis. We've had 15 nursing homes across the state close. We had one close in Crookston just about a month month ago. Um, and we have others slated to close. These are our most vulnerable senior citizens, those who need the highest level of care. Family members do not place their, their loved ones in a nursing home for the convenience. They do it because they can no longer provide the care that is needed. And these facilities are closing. We have a crisis in, in caring for our senior citizens. And what amount of money do you think should be put there? And where do you think it should go? Well, I think, you know, I mean, there, there is money going into assisted livings. We call it, it's, it's a complicated budget system. It's, or spending system. We call it elderly waiver. The problem is it's our nursing homes themselves that are being left out of this budget. And, um, that's where the real crisis is, is in our nursing homes. Now, to really solve the problem, we, we need a significant investment. But, you know, the Senate at least invested 120-ish million dollars. Uh, the House is at 3.9. 0.01% of a $72 billion budget 
is being allocated for our senior citizens in nursing homes. That's atrocious. Are there elements of this budget plan that's pretty much coming to the floor piece by piece that you support? And if so, what are they? Well, certainly. You know, I serve on the Human Services Committee. I'm the Republican lead on that committee. And we have a lot of needs there with PCAs, uh, home workers, group homes. These really have been underfunded. And we, we have a crisis in our healthcare system when it comes to these facilities. And so there is a lot of good in the Human Services Bill. The problem is this gaping hole, this lack of, of care for our senior citizens in nursing homes. Away from from that space, are there other parts of the budget that you are on board with? Sure. You know, I mean, I think uh, Republicans offered a counterpoint to the spending in education yesterday. We would love to see the money that is being invested in education going directly to our school, our local schools so that they can use those funds in the way that uh, would would be most beneficial to our local school districts because our needs are different all across the state. But the investment itself, we want to invest in our schools. We want to take care of our kids. What do you make of the automatic inflation aspect they put into that bill where the formula would go up by a certain amount every every year into the future? Well, I, I think it's dangerous to put inflators into state budgets. You know, uh, legislators are elected to set a state budget. That is literally our job. And... Um, you know, there are times like now that we have a massive budget surplus where we are able to make significant investments. Uh, but there are other times where our state is struggling and those, and those automatic inflators across the board, um, can be, can, can put us in a precarious position as a state. DFLers have allowed some Republican amendments to these budget bills, both in committee and on the floor. Do you feel like your caucus has had real buy-in though? No. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I also serve on the health committee and we were told that there were two pre- Republican bills included in the health committee. Well, both of those Republican bills were just agency bills that they asked our Republicans to, to, to carry. They were not bills that, that are our priorities or things that, that we would actually move. So no, while, while there has been, um, fiddling around the edges and allowing Republican input around the edges, there's certainly, uh, is no uh, wholesale buy-in from Republicans. And frankly, there is no real inclusion of Republicans in the process. Next week, the tax bill will reach the floor. Do you see that getting any Republican votes? I have a hard time believing it. You know, we haven't seen the tax bill yet, so we don't really, um, that's, that is, they're still finalizing that. The tax committee is still meeting. Um, But there are a lot of tax increases happening in the state of Minnesota right now. And um, I, I do not believe that we are going to see a full exclusion of Social Security income in that bill, which is a promise that we made to Minnesotans. We absolutely should be eliminating the tax and Social Security income. And we're not going to see that. And as a top priority for, frankly, every Republican and a lot of Democrats, I would add, that is a major problem when we're going to be seeing the tax bill. I know you're busy, so you probably didn't know that the tax bill got through Ways and Means, and so it's ready for floor action. If there's, <laughs> just this morning. Just this morning, just yes. This morning. Okay. If, if there's a tax bill with a rebate, new family credits, and a bump up in the subtraction for Social Security, yet not that full repeal, is it going to be hard for Republicans to say no? No. You know what? 
we're going to keep our promises. And we made promises to Minnesotans. And frankly, Democrats made promises to Minnesotans that we were going to do a full repeal of the Social Security tax. And if we're not going to keep that promise, I have no reason to vote for that bill. So next week, the marijuana legalization bill is set for debate. I think it's Monday. Do you expect that that will go the distance this year? You know, I don't know. It is a really complicated bill. And I think that there are a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who have some interest in seeing legalization. And there there are folks on both sides of the aisle who have some heartburn about it. And so uh, to, to, to bring that across the finish line and come up with a polished finished product that is really going to work for Minnesota, I think is still a heavy lift. And I think you were indicating you're a no. I am like, uh, yes, I am a no on the current bill. The, 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 the current legalization bill is not just legalizing marijuana. It is a complex, uh, bureaucracy actually that we're creating. And New Brindley, thanks for joining us and we'll talk in more in the weeks ahead. Thanks, Brian. Programming supported by Jobs for Minnesotans, a coalition of organizations brought together and committed to strengthening communities and advancing one common goal, investment in job creation in Minnesota through responsible industrial projects that can power a clean energy economy. Jobsforminnesotans.com. You're listening to Politics Friday from NPR News. I'm Brian Baxt. It's been another busy week at the Capitol, so... Let's listen back to the voices we heard, starting with Governor Walls and his State of the State address. Minnesotans, three months into a second term, I'm proud to report the state of our state is strong, and it's getting stronger with every investment we make in our people and the futures they're working so hard to build. The state of the state is overtaxed and growing. Here we have, in the state of Minnesota, $17,000 a month for the governor to have a residence. That's not very Minnesotan. When, in stark contrast, you have the governor of Arkansas who moved into a trailer home happily, their governor's mansion was renovated, moved back in, and there was no scandal, there was no offense, because here's the deal. Every dollar that we spend down here started off in someone's wallet or a checkbook or in their pocketbook. But when we're talking about the governor's residence, that is not a home like my home. It's technically a state building, a state office building. But I do believe that we all want to be prudent with our money and so that no more than is necessary should be spent. Members, does everybody remember Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? Mr. Rogers had a train. Do you know why that train was so popular and worked so well for Mr. Rogers? It's because Mr. Rogers didn't have to worry about things like fare box recovery He didn't have to worry about rampant crime on the trolley. As a Ravenclaw, I'm looking at this amendment, and if we're preventing anything that could be related to divination, we all know Professor Trelawney was a professor of divination at Hogwarts Academy. This could potentially prevent anything related to Hogwarts or Harry Potter or any part of that universe. Harry Potter's fictional. Why 
listen, you cannot stand to debate her. You oh, I was just ask, I was just asking. Uh, if, uh, Senator. Okay, Senator? I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize. Thank you, Mr. President. My question would be if a constituent of mine um, was one of the first people to come forward about the sexual abuse that happened in the Catholic Church and was working on an arts project related to that with a theater, would that theater then be prohibited from accepting this money? Sin can exist in any institution... And we need to work hard as the Minnesota Senate to protect our young, vulnerable children's minds against these terrible, wicked, evil practices. We need to examine all institutions to prohibit such funds. You're looking for a level playing field between not only cannabis, but also (laughs) with hemp, that the coalition goes beyond MN is ready and that we're looking for something that's going to be working and is effective. I'm voting no on your bill today, but I want your assurances that you'll, as this process goes forward, that you're committed to those three things. But what with your promise of voting no, how can I resist uh, the opportunity (laughs) to... uh, No, but in all seriousness, yes, absolutely. We rededicate ourselves to the vision that our founders had more than four decades ago to create an institution within government that represents our interests and elevates the voices of our communities and organizations to bring equality and equity in the access to services, programs, and budget allocations so that more Minnesotans can live with dignity to share in the prosperity while giving back to this beautiful state. We are an integral part of Minnesota. We are a part of its social fabric. When Latino Minnesotans thrive, all Minnesotans thrive. I'm going to read a poem. It's in Espanol, but it is about us, about the people that are here. It's called Espejos. Somos espejos que retratan nuestro rostro color tierra que soy yo, tú, nosotros. Míranos. Aquí estamos, somos. Espejos de nuestras memorias. Many of us who are first generation cross many borders. Some of us, many borders, to come to this place. So the idea is, what is it that we want to do now that we are here? And the simple thing is, we want to live better. We just simply want to live better. I don't know what else, but just to live better, in a safe place, in a place where you can be recognized as a human being, that you are respected. That's all what we want. Today, all kids are our kids. Every kid in the United States, transgender, gender expansive, cisgender, you're our kids today. Minnesota is going to protect your health care, they're going to protect your providers, and we're going to protect you. just this morning on the bill if the Senate is due to debate. From marathon consideration of budget bills to the state of the state speech, the Capitol was buzzing again all week, and there's no near-term let-up. I don't know if they're exhausted as I am, but two steadfast observers of the legislature are giving us a bit of their time. My NPR News colleague Dana Ferguson and Min Post Capitol correspondent Peter Callahan are here to round out the show. Dana, Peter, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I never tire. 
<laughs> Never tire. <laughs> you were here late on Wednesday to hear the governor say the state of Peter, and, and you, you kind of drew on the way he was talking past the audience in front of him and almost to a broader national audience. Can you just give us a sense as to what you meant by that? Well, the, the let, let's be more specific than the governor was. He seemed to be talking about a Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, or Florida man. Um, and it's sort of part of what, what you have and others have reported as the governor's thought that he can be a national figure. I don't think he's running for president or anything, but I think he can position himself because of the trifecta in the state and the de- Democrats here being able to pass a lot of bills that are opposite of what uh, some Republican states are doing, that, that he is portraying himself as as sort of the Democratic opposite of that movement. And Dana, what was the mood in the room? Um, it depends who you are in the room. Uh, DFLers were certainly really excited. They were cheering. They were standing up for various lines that the governor had to say. Um, but on the opposite side of the chamber, Republicans were pretty unhappy for a good chunk of it. And we heard from them that they felt like they were getting dunked on a little bit by the governor, um, where we've seen him try to bring folks together at a normal a number of previous speeches. And so to hear him really charging up his base while sort of going after Republicans and other states, I think it caught them off guard. And it's only been a couple of days and these things tend to wear off. But it seems like some of the Republicans were were thinking that this might have a, a bad taste in their mouth for a while. They were bringing up portions of his speech even yesterday in the education debate. Is this going to sour the bipartisan spirit that Walls has said he wants to cultivate? Which bipartisan spirit is that you speak of? Um, I think once the trifecta hit and Democrats felt that they had been given a mandate, um, Republicans are welcome to vote on DFL bills and vote for DFL bills, but I've not seen a whole lot of uh, uh, thought by DFL majority to compromise on anything in order to bring Republicans along. And aside from what he was doing to speak to the national audience, we heard the Governor Walls harken back to a different era when his party controlled all three levers of power and made a hard charge. I want to listen back to that part of his speech. And I want to ask you to keep pushing, keep fighting, keep going. The whole nation is looking to you for inspiration. Together, we're not just showing the people of Minnesota what we're capable of and delivering on our promises. We're showing the entire American people just how much promise is contained in that progressive vision held by so many people. We're redrawing a roadmap for 49 other states by doing whatever it takes to become the state that works for every single person. We're proving not only can you campaign on this idea of looking to the future, on compassion and decency, you can actually govern that way. 50 years after the Minnesota miracle, We've got another chance to be America's North Star. Dana, this this Minnesota miracle aura, I guess, that the holy grail for Democrats seem to, to grab onto every time. Uh, how are they drawing on that as, as they approach this budget? I think we're hearing from DFLers that they like that uniting theme. Speaker Horbin, after the speech, said, this is our shot at Minnesota Miracle 2.0. Um, and you heard from the lawmakers you had on earlier, that they are really charged up around this mission. They want to make Minnesota the greatest state to raise kids. Um, 
they feel that a lot of the work that they're doing putting these budget bills together is going to make Minnesota a better place. And whenever you talk to them, you can just feel it. They're really excited about it. They think it's going to work. Um, but obviously, their Republican colleagues don't feel the same way. And we hear a lot from them about just how expensive a lot of these proposals are going to be. And uh, they don't necessarily align with DFLers that they're taking the state in the right direction. So for, for listeners of a, an older age, they might have heard similarities to the governor at the time in 1973, Wendell Anderson, a Democrat who was in office during a legislative makeover favoring his party. We pulled part of the State of the State address from him from our archives. Here's a, here's a taste. This session of the legislature is faced with a mandate unique in Minnesota history. I don't believe that any session of our Minnesota legislature has ever been composed of as high a percentage of new members as this one. I don't believe that any session has been as youthful. I know that no other session has had as many women members. This newness, this freshness, provides us with a special opportunity to demonstrate to the people of Minnesota that government works and it works for them. That is what this session is uniquely qualified to do. To fail would be tragic. To succeed would be to found a whole new era in our public life. So let us begin this historic session knowing that the only restraints on progress are timidity and doubt. Let our vision be worthy of our mandate. Let each horizon become a threshold. Let this be a session in which government does work for the people starting now. Thank you very much. Peter, that was a former Governor Wendell Anderson. He's drawing on the the a lot of new members back then, more diverse and, and for the times, I guess. But this legislature has quite a, a bit of new members and new diversity. How are those new and diverse members exerting themselves when it comes to this budget? What was inter- Before I answered that, what was interesting was the state of the state was clearly given at the start of the <laughs> legislative session back then and not with one month to go, which I've always found odd. Um, but um, the, the, certainly the new people, I think, think they will be in control forever because that's what it feels like. And they won this election and they were given this mandate. Um, but I think people who've been here a little longer have an interesting other perspective, which is that they might not be in control in two years. And so they're in a hurry. And they think they need to pass as much of this legislation as they can this session and next session because they might lose control. That, that's an interesting perspective, and that to me shows uh, 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 a sophisticated understanding of politics and how you should get what you can when you can get it and not expect that you'll be in power for a long time. And Dana, we've seen that with some of the social policy bills that have been put forward already on abortion and gay rights. I mean, just a minute ago, the conversion therapy bill uh, ban- the bill to ban conversion therapy for, for minors uh, it passed 36 to 27 with uh, former Senate Majority Leader Jeremy Miller and Zach Duckworth, Republicans voting along with the DFL. Uh, talk about about how big of a presence those uh, social issues have had in this session. I think they've been really significant and they've certainly been um, taking up quite a bit of time and a lot of energy in this building. 
And a lot of that has been forced by other states and states that neighbor Minnesota and the actions they've taken in the opposite direction to limit or ban access to abortion, ban access to gender-affirming care. There are 12 states that have just this year outlawed gender-affirming care for transgender young people. And lawmakers here, I think, see that Minnesota can be a refuge or a place where those cares are all legal and uh, accessible to people, and they want to make sure folks who are traveling from other states have legal protections while they're here and that providers do too. And Peter, another one of these social issues, I guess you could call it, is the marijuana bill. It's up on Monday. How do you think that's going to shake out? I think it will pass. Um, in the House. In the House. And it's it's an interesting bill in that it has gotten more hearings than any bill I've ever watched uh and the people who are sponsoring it have been open to changes, not as many changes as a lot of the opponents want. It has not slowed down. DFL has made a pledge that they're going to pass this bill. The only thing they have to fear is the clock. And if they finish uh, each of their versions by the end of next week, uh, we have three weeks left of session or maybe less in Hortman time because the speaker has said she wants to finish early. Uh, that leaves a couple of weeks for them to resolve significant differences in the bills, and they're not—they're not philosophical differences; they're just language differences. So it's—it's it's a close call, but I think they passed that bill this year. And, and Dana, are we still expecting the traditional end of session pileup where they rush through a bunch of big bills in short order, and it's all a blur? It seems like we are on a trajectory to have less of a pileup at the end just because they're getting more of their work done earlier in session. However, as Peter said, if we are online to do an early end, it might get a little tougher to do that just because there are so many big budget bills and other bills that are still needing to get finalized and then voted on another time before they make their way to the governor's desk. So. It will be a very busy next few weeks. And Peter, with uh, 15 seconds left, do you uh, have summer plans? No, uh, knowing that they might get done. You mean did I uh, pay for those non-refundable tickets on uh, May 23rd? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's our program for this Friday. Matthew Alvarez is our producer. Josh Savageo is our technical director. We had technical assistance from Maury Jensen. Moral support and more from political editor Mike Mulcahy. I'm Brian Baxt. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.